And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. Hey, I know that many of you have been passing the time by listening to episodes of The Axe Files during this difficult period we're in, and it occurred to me that maybe people need some relief from the grinding, relentless nature of the news right now. And so I decided that I'm going to reach back into The Axe Files vault to pick the ones that I thought might be fun to listen to again, as well as some that I just have never had a chance to share with you. I'm going to start today with a conversation I had in January with Gerald Butts who was the principal secretary, meaning the top advisor to Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. He was his political advisor and alter ego college friend who worked with him during the campaign. Also a friend of mine who I worked with on a provincial election a couple of decades ago in Ontario. Fascinating guy, really compelling life story. I hope you'll enjoy it and we'll continue to share with you some old and some new, but hopefully episodes that will help you through this time. Jerry Butts, it's great to see you again, old friend and colleague from up north. Most Americans don't know you, but you are a uh, well-known political figure up in Canada where you really, you work closely with your friend Justin Trudeau throughout his political career, Mm -hmm. served at his side. We'll get into all of that, but you've got a hell of a good story of your own, and I wanted to probe that a little bit because you you came from a, a much different place than you wound up. right. Well, I um, think... Tell me about life in, uh, in, in Glace Bay. Is that how it's Glace meant? Bay, that's right. Uh, Nova Scotia. Where is that? It is uh, pretty much on the far eastern tip of Canada. It's um, on Cape Breton Island, on the east coast of Cape Breton Island. Uh, the, my Newfoundland and Labradorian friends will say it's the second most eastern province in Canada. But where I grew up, I grew up about a kilometer from the ocean. And if you if you sailed due east, the next piece of land you would hit would be Europe. Uh-huh. So very much on the east coast of Canada. You'd have to wait a while to get there. You'd have to wait yeah. a while to get yeah. there. Yeah. If you had strong and, and how'd your family get there? Uh, they were, like most North American stories, a, a, a mongrel mix of immigrants from a bunch of different places. My dad's side was mostly Irish. My mom's side was a melange of Eastern Europeans, which, depending on the state of geopolitics, they describe themselves as Polish or Czech or mm-hmm. Ukrainian, but they were mostly Ukrainian. And what generation arrived in Canada? I would have been the second generation. Uh-huh. And... Um, uh, like a lot of Ukrainians who ended up in Canada, my my mother's family came, I believe in the in the first part of the 20th century. They came in in the Great Migration of Ukrainians out of Eastern Europe, and uh, a lot of Ukrainians, of course, settled on the prairies in Canada and in the Midwest here. Mm-hmm. Uh, but for some reason, my mother's family stayed in uh, stayed in Cape Breton, which they were called mining family mm-hmm. on both sides. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How'd your parents meet? Well, there was a big age difference between them. It's actually kind of an interesting story. We, we all, My dad was a devout Catholic. He went to church every day. And when I say every day, I mean every day. Uh, and he used to drag us to church every day during Lent, um, whether there was hockey practice or not. And there was 14 years between them. So my dad married suspiciously late in life uh, for someone at that age. He was 38 years old. I think about this all the time because I'm a, I'm 48 now. 
and uh, my dad was 54 when I was born, so I was a late in life Catholic mistake, right? Um, but there are a lot of us, and it was kind of family speculation that maybe my dad had intended to be a priest. And then he met my mother, who was 24 uh, when they got married. What was she doing? She was a nurse. Uh-huh. So she she had, this is the mysterious part. And was part. she Catholic as well? She was, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And, and um, you know, our, our, our countries, our societies have become much more diverse and, than they were at that time. But there would have been it would have been considered cultural diversity at the time to have a mix of uh, someone with an Irish and someone with an Eastern European background. Of course, those people, they, they, they kept their languages very vibrant. So there was a bit of a, a divide. But there was this really interesting year where my mom, and this was a big thing in her family, I think she was the first person to get a professional qualification. She went to Toronto to go to uh, nursing school. And... Um, you know, there was a pause in our parent, our parents' relationship. And then I'm sure there was a moment where she was deciding, this would have been in the early 50s, early to mid 50s, where she was deciding whether to stay in Toronto, like many, many people from the East Coast, and pursue a professional career uh, there, or come home. And she ended up coming home and they got married. Nobody really knows the story. There's not a lot of emails between them to survive. Yeah, that yeah. Period. That's a, how, why is that? Anyway, yeah. your dad was a lifelong coal miner? He was a lifelong coal miner. Talk about that. There's so many aspects to that. I mean, I, I think it contributed. There were a lot of people died in the coal mines. There was a horrible mine explosion when there you was. were in grade school. There was. And a lot of your classmates lost their... That's correct. Yeah. Do you, what, do you remember that day? Uh, vividly. Uh, I think I was in grade three or four, and we were in a split grade, so there were kids from both grades in my class. And I remember the, the events surrounding it. I believe it happened on a weekend. But there were, there were six people who lost either their father or teachers who lost their husbands in my class. And it, it's funny. It's one of those things that when you describe it to people, those of us who've who've never really worked in any kind of workplace where physical harm was a remote possibility, it sounds so foreign. It's like it happened in another country in a, a, you know the distant past. But that's the way people lived where I grew up. It was a constant concern that a loved one was going to be lost at work, which mm-hmm. is very strange. Now, when that happened, it, you know. did you? Did you, was your dad still working? He had, he had, we were lucky he had just retired, but he, my dad was a very stoic guy. He was a very funny, wonderful man, a great sense of humor, very intelligent. And just because of the diminished horizons of the time, if you were a 19 year old male in Cape Breton in the thirties, you were probably going to end up working in what they would call the pit, right? Um, so that's just the way it was. And he, he went into the, the coal mines in the 30s and left in the 70s. So mm-hmm. 40 years, he saw almost 800 people die in Nova Scotia mines. And what about the health uh, implications, black lung and so on? It was brutal. It was brutal for a lot of people. And the, the spin-off health uh, problems associated with alcoholism, which was a rampant demon in the town through the whole time but at the same time it i don't want to paint some picture of kind of dickensian england because these were these were happy collegial people Mm -hmm. right my dad would say although he didn't he didn't drink at all at all he never tasted alcohol i think he and his brother took the temperance oath and in the 30s and they and as i said he was a mass day catholic and he never took uh 
uh, well, he took the bread, but and, not the and wine. And he, he didn't uh, drink because he saw what had happened I to think other so. People? I think so. He would, uh, like most things with my dad, the way he would talk about them was he, he loved to joke about it, right? So you were never, but as, as most psychologists will tell you, there's no such thing as a joke, right? Yeah. Um, there's usually a rationale for it. So he would, he would get at his... That's why you don't want to go to parties with psychologists. Correct, but anyway. correct. Yeah, it's very fun. Yeah. It's a lot of fun. <laughs> um, but I, I think it was more a personal commitment uh, for him. He certainly saw what it had done to families and lives around him. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he just didn't like the way people were when they were drunk. Uh-huh. You being a, a normal red-blooded Canadian boy right. did not take the same temperance oath. No, I did not take the same temperance oath. But it, it, I read somewhere that he that uh, they found an empty bottle in your room one yes, day. Yes, that's right. That's right. When I was 16, I, I had the bright idea that many kids have that you should uh, uh, keep a souvenir of the first time that you drink. And uh, this is a great story, actually. It, it, it reveals a lot about my my parents and my aunt, his 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 sister, my aunt Peggy, who was, who was a, a nun. Right? She was a nun yeah. and, a, and a PhD in political science, who would have done her PhD in the 1950s as a a woman and be a nun. Yeah, that's amazing. It's a stunning thing. She's one of the most remarkable people I've ever uh, known in my life. Um, but. I stupidly kept this bottle. She also was in politics. She was in late in life. She was appointed to the Senate, and our system, the Senate, is is appointed. So she spent two and, and a half. And the church years had no Senate. objection to that. No, in fact, there's a there's a property requirement in order to sit in the Senate in Canada. So the Diocese of Anaganish had to transfer several acres of swampland into her name so she could satisfy the constitutional huh. obligation to own property. It's actually, I think she's still the only cleric ever to sit in the Senate. Amazing. Yeah, she's, she was an amazing, amazing woman. Um, and an influence on you. Yeah, for sure. Huge influence. She taught me how to read and write. So the bottle was sitting on the table when you came home for a lunch. Yes. Uh, I used to have lunch with her and my father, and depending on what shift my mother was working, because she also worked in the mine as a nurse, um, I, was, I came home for lunch. And the bottle of empty bottle of Jack Daniels, which I thought was my prized possession that I'd squirreled away in the proverbial uh, underwear drawer, was sitting right in the middle of the table like that. And I spent about an hour waiting for somebody to say something about it, and none of them did. They just let it sit there, and it it that hour felt like a decade. Um, and I, I think that's it an made, interesting approach. Speaking of psychology, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I've tried to figure out ways to do similar things to my children, but I haven't come up yeah, with anything. Quite I don't so think I would have yet. the patience for that kind of subtlety. No, I don't think so but either. It, it sounds pretty effective. It was very effective. It was very effective. Uh, they made their point. Yeah, and probably also left you wondering what they were doing in your underwear drawer. But correct, that's a different. Correct. Well, it's it's a good. Speaking of surveillance, it's a good way of. Uh, <laughs> Becoming acquainted with the concept early in life. <laughs> All of your siblings went on to become professionals. Correct. Yeah. Highly educated. You went to McGill University. That's right. Was it always understood that you kids would do that? Yeah. My, my, there were five of us, and we all have, I think, at least two degrees. Um, and that was an unusual thing for a coal mining family, obviously. Uh, especially given my, my older brothers are 13, 12, and 10 years older than me. So they were, they were more your uh, 
peers than mine um, generationally. So they, you know, it was speaking of the coal mines, it was very, every time we screwed up as kids, my dad would say, well, I could always get you a job in the pit. Uh-huh. Right. And it was their way. When I say he used humor as an inducement, that was the way he would paint a picture for what life could look like for us if we didn't apply ourselves you know, adequately point, in education. I saw that you had called him or written yeah, him yeah. to complain when you were yeah, having back a when, bad day. In the, yeah, back it, when we when we knew each other, yeah. uh, when we met each other, rather, in the McGinty years. Yeah, uh, the, the campaign that we worked together exactly. on in Ontario. In Ontario. Um, I was, uh, as young people often are in these circumstances, completely unaware of what real work looked like. Um, and therefore, I felt it easy to complain about how tired I was and how little time I had, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I stupidly complained this way to my father on the phone. And he said, well, it's tough. You know, you got to make time for, we'd just been married. You got to make time for your your wife and et cetera, et cetera. And um, he said nothing about it. And then about, oh, I guess three weeks later, this uh, photograph arrived in the mail. And, uh, and it was a big thing because my mom was always the person who wrote to us. My dad never never wrote to us. And on the back of the photograph, um, it was a picture of the mine shaft, the replica of the mine shaft, which is in the Miners Museum in Glace Bay. And the, the photograph is someone's mining clothes hanging up on a hook and next to it there's a sign that says um your wife and kids forgive the gender specificity your wife and kids expect you home tonight don't disappoint them be careful Mm -hmm. right and on the back of the picture my dad had written i walked by this goddamn sign every day for 40 years so you don't have to stop complaining yeah yeah and i've never forgotten that and i adopted a um a kind of personal motto whenever things seemed really difficult any day in the office i would say well it beats mine and coal yeah so you went off to mcgill and you studied uh, english and uh, got a master's in literature yeah. that doesn't seem like a terribly there's great joy in it <laughs> Uh, I'm not in any way uh, diminishing uh, the value diminishing. of the humanities at the University of exactly, Chicago. Exactly, but you, you don't, you can't exactly hang up a literature no. shingle. You no. obviously were headed for academia, yeah. and in fact, you pursued it. Just explain yourself. Right. What, what were you? <laughs> if what only you? my parents were alive to hear this explanation. <laughs> um, I actually went to McGill with the intention of studying physics, and I got there and realized how difficult that would be and how little time it would leave me for just about everything else in my life. I mean, I, uh, I, can do, uh, I can do boring and I can do really hard, but it's hard to do really hard and boring. And that's what the uh, impenetrable math involved in doing a physics degree at uh, McGill University looked like to me. So I, I initially switched into political science and social sciences. And again, my father had a, a real impact on this and in a surprising way that I, what I really loved was literature. I loved reading. I loved writing fiction. I loved just about everything about it. And um, I, t- I was sort of gradually inching my way toward it. Uh, as most people do when they discover what they love. And um, 
I was worried about doing it because for exactly the reason you just alluded to, I didn't think it had any practical value at all. And I talked to my dad about it one day and he said, well, you know, you should do what you like. Hmm. And uh, I was stunned, frankly, Yeah. because I expected him to say, no, you should put yourself in a position to go to law school or whatever it was that he thought was appropriate and, you know, uh, would know, be remunerative I, I, at the time for me. I know how you feel about your dad. Yeah. So uh, yeah. But I can also see why, because there's a lot of wisdom there. There's a lot of wisdom. And, and, and love, you know, yeah. to tell you that. And as you know, David, nothing really prepares you for politics. No, but, you know, I was going to say, it's interesting. I was sitting here thinking, uh, literature, that's kind of unusual. But, you know, my view of politics, and particularly the role that you and I have played as strategists is that it's really about storytelling. 100% correct. So understanding the arc of a story Mm -hmm. and how to communicate it is actually valuable in politics. So are good associations. And while you were at McGill, Mm -hmm. you made a friendship that ultimately would change your life, and that Mm -hmm. was with Justin Trudeau. Tell me about that, how that friendship uh, developed. Well, we were introduced by a mutual friend, uh, Jonathan Ablett, who is living in the United States now, actually, in Boston. Um, Wonderful guy. Uh, And it was just a normal friendship. You knew who he was. Yeah. You know, Pierre Trudeau was a towering figure in Canadian history. Long since retired. Right. And and unlike here, where... um, and I'm sure you're... Which I uh, should point out, for those who don't know, was the prime minister for... for 16 years. Yeah. 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 And unlike here, where uh, in particular, you know, I, I, I think that uh, um, the kids of politicians have a public persona of their own in the United States in a way that has not traditionally been the case in Canada. And Justin's father was very protective of his identity as a, a, a young man. Right. So when they left, uh, when they left politics, when Pierre left politics, Justin was 13 years old, I think. And uh, they moved to Montreal and had a very quiet life for most of the next 10 years. The one thing that the Trudeau family, though, was like of global interest because he married a young woman, Margaret Mm -hmm. Trudeau. They were a very glamorous couple. And Uh, and probably the first public divorce in the history of the country. And she bravely and courageously has since uh, talked about her yeah. own struggles with mental yeah, illness. Absolutely, There was a, a kind of spotlight on the family. Yeah, there was. I, and I think that uh, one of the things I like about our, one of the many things I love about Canada is it's, most people are unpretentious, right? There, there weren't a lot of kids at McGill who, um, everybody knew who Justin was, but also nobody really cared. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the end of the day, I think that uh, he was treated like everybody else by everybody else. I think his his public persona um, became much more robust after it was. I want to out. talk about that in yeah. a second. But you, one of the things you were involved in there was debate. Yeah, you were a champion debater. You were the sort of debate maven on the <laughs> McGill. I had a very good camp, partner, and you drew him into that. A little bit. Uh, it, it wasn't really, ironically, in the end, I guess, because he ended up doing the public debates. Um, uh, it wasn't really his his uh, his thing. We 
there were a lot of people involved in the debating union at McGill that formed lifelong friendships. And some of them are in caucus now, actually, at sure. Liberal Party caucus in Ottawa. But our friendship had more to do with playing pool than it did with uh, debate. And uh, we were just... I, there are lots of conspiracy theories in in particular in the right in Canada about how we'd been planning his ascendancy since we were callow undergraduates at McGill, but it's just not true, unfortunately. But his political ascension really began with one signature speech, yeah. which was the eulogy for his father, which Correct. was a national event. It was a very large national and you, event. And you had a quite a bit to do with that. You worked with him on that. Yeah, there were, there were a bunch. I mean, it was very much his own speech, David. And I know I'm not saying that in the usual politician way that, uh, of course, Barack Well, let Obama me know when wrote. you're saying stuff in the usual yeah. politician way so we can bracket it <laughs> yeah, for our exactly. listeners here. Exactly. But you know what I mean. It's the common thing to say. But uh, uh, he, it was very much his own speech. And, and there were a bunch of people, including my aunt, actually, Aunt Peggy, who talked to him about it, uh, who gave him advice. But and Joe McGinnis was another person, the great uh, oceanographer and physician, uh, who talked to him about it, and gave we all gave him advice on what we thought he should do. But then he took all that advice and told a few really beautiful stories about his dad. To get back to your point about storytelling, mm-hmm. we'll get back to him. Mm-hmm. But you gravitated to politics. You were beginning to pursue your doctorate, I guess. Yeah, and and I ended up, um, uh, as many graduate students do, uh, taking on. Uh, part-time work to support my own studies and uh, ended up working in research, mostly in qualitative research and focus groups, but strictly for private sector clients. I was doing a lot of work for um, uh, insurance, finance, drug companies, that kind of thing. It was very... Let me ask you about the... the I, I, I'm a huge devotee of qualitative research. My mm-hmm. mom was yeah, in qualitative research, so I come by it honestly. A pioneer of it. I was sort of interested in how you gravitated to that. Well, I saw it as a storytelling of a different sort, mm-hmm. right? That I, I'm also a big believer in data, and we ran a very innovative uh, data operation in both uh, all five campaigns that I've been involved in in my life, and it was a key ingredient of success. But at the end of the day, there's no substitute for uh, flesh and blood human beings and getting a sense of their reaction to uh, or their view of what's going on in their country right? yeah. or their province at the time. Or in their lives. Or in their lives, especially yeah. in their lives, yeah. in fact. Because you can't, uh, as you know well, the quantitative approach to research, especially as it's evolved now, is very bloodless. And there's there's just no substitute for watching well, the way and in people fact, you know, talk. Not to get a wonk out on this, yeah. but quantitative research, polling and so on, is only as good as the input. 100%. And people are blessedly counterintuitive. Yeah. And the things that come out of their mouths about their lives, about how they're seeing events, is often when something you say, that you don't think about. When you, when you say that, do you mean that the questionnaire frames the discussion too much? Well, I, I think that the questionnaire that you do for polls is always enriched, in my view, if you have a qualitative discussion beforehand where Absolutely. people say things that you hadn't thought of. Right, in language that you hadn't dreamt of. Yeah, I I mean, and I think it would, you know, as I went on in politics, I knew I lived in this kind of rarefied environment. Bubble. And the worst thing you can do is think you know yeah. 
what people are thinking or think that they're going to process things the way you're processing. Yeah, I, I think that's a really important thing. And maybe we should dwell on it a little bit. But because I think of we things. have. There's a couple of things <laughs> I'd like to ask you about it. I, I, I think that the hardest thing to do in politics, in particular, when you're successful and you have a, you end up forming a government and serving in a government, I'm sure you had this experience as well, is I used to think to myself that the longer we're in these jobs, all of us, the ministers, the prime minister, the staff, senior staff, anybody who's got a public profile, the more even the people who know you see you as the job rather mm -hmm. than as a person. Yes. And the only way to maintain um, some kind of authenticity as a person is to have relationships with people who are outside of that. Mm -hmm. And that can take many forms. It could be in a focus group. For me, those kinds of conversations yeah. are, for Obama, he insisted on getting 10 letters right. a day. People would send 50,000 letters a day, and course, the staff yeah. would give him 10 that were representative of the letters that mm -hmm. they were getting. He often would correspond with the people, who's, or sometimes he'd just pick up the phone and call them. Right. And he, he did that because the White House, and I, I expect it's true in, in Canadian oh, we government, Honestly copied that, by the way. I think that was advice that Obama gave Trudeau. Well, you know, you feel like you're... Li when you work in the White House, you feel like you're in a submarine yeah. and you're watch looking at America through a periscope. Mm -hmm. And uh, the thing that I found most difficult, frankly, about moving from Chicago to Washington was that I lost my sense of feel yeah. because I wasn't interacting with people whose lives weren't completely defined by government yeah. and politics. And so one way that I did keep up was through qualitative research. Right. And, you know, I was looking at focus group reports and talking to our focus group person on a weekly basis mm -hmm. to get a sense of no, how I, people same, were. Absolutely the same. I think it's like many things. Uh, there are a lot of important similarities in uh, the way Canadian politics works and some really important differences too. But yeah. uh, moving from Toronto yeah. to you, Ottawa you, you, is a you big... You say that with a, an air of judgment. But anyway, well, no, 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 <laughs> believe me. They're, they're, uh, they're, uh, they're good people on all sides. <laughs> all right, okay. You can park all of those but it's, it's old a very, political skills here. It's a, it's a very similar thing. Uh, yeah. when you move from Toronto to Ottawa. And in some ways, it's even more pronounced in Ottawa, which is a much smaller town. Yes. And tends to be populated by people who've been there for a much longer time. Mm -hmm. You know, the big dynamic difference. Don't, don't underrate the provinciality of Washington, of Washington D.C. Yeah. Yeah. You went to work for a guy named Dalton McGinty. That's how we, That's how we uh, met, yeah. met. I was briefly involved in, the, in your first campaign. Before the Canadians, uh, you had a very important role in our. It's very modest of you. Americans, you, you know, I, I I was thinking about that the other day when I saw that you were doing the um, the new podcast with Mike Murphy. Yes, because he was the he was the guy who yeah. was working for Harris and mm -hmm. uh, who was for the, the Tory, who the yeah, conservative, yeah, conservative at, yes. at the time. And there were a lot of people around who felt that we needed a superior American to uh, beat their American. Right. And that's how we... Mike takes credit, actually, for me getting <laughs> hired up there. He said, I showed him what Americans can do. Yeah. Um, you have a bit of a different approach to politics than Mike does. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, we do. Yeah. We do. I enjoy... He's a lovely guy. I, I enjoy him. But anyway, you started as a policy... Yeah, I was, I was you hired. Wrote, you wrote McGinty a note, right? He yeah. was a client of your firm. Yeah, that's right. And, and I wrote I wasn't, a strategic note. Yeah, and I wasn't... Uh, um, really in the political arm of the firm. I was doing mostly private sector work. But he had said something in the aftermath of the campaign that he thought that they'd lost because 
he was just the anti-conservative candidate and they didn't have a perspective of their own on issues. And I wrote him, at, again, I was probably 25 years old or something, I wrote him this long letter saying um, I thought he was right. And uh, he called me after checking me out with Don Guy, who was the person who was running the firm and had run his campaign, and he called me in to have a meeting and that began a relationship that ended up with me being his director of policy and then his uh, principal secretary eventually as he was uh, he was premier of Ontario. He's a wonderful, wonderful man. Starting a letter like that with the premise that the candidate was right often gets That's... it a good often gets it a good a, <laughs> a good, good reading. Hearing. Yeah. Uh, but you you played a, a very significant role yeah. in the first he was there for for 10 years. 10 years. Yeah. Uh, and you were there for the fir- first two of, campaigns the f- uh, and helped out helped him out a little personally in the third campaign but mostly the first two campaigns and it was an underdog story, right? That um, we're very much the minority party in Ontario, yes. the Liberal Party, the Conservatives which very had, muscular the Conservative Party in They were Ontario. very muscular and uh, Again, they're they're the government of Ontario now, um, even more muscular, and uh, uh, it was an underdog campaign. I mean, you remember it very well. There's a lot of people who had hadn't won an election in a very long time, right? Uh, and a lot of people expected Dalton never to be premier of Ontario, um, but he he had a very clear sense of what he wanted to do, and he wanted to build. Uh, from a policy perspective, on in particular on education and the environment, he's kind of the person who turned me into an environmentalist, frankly. Um, but at that point, as you know, I was very focused on public education, and that was um, that was my my policy orientation. It's kind of what got me engaged in politics in the first place. I didn't like what the conservatives were doing to public schools. He also had a good working class sensibility. Great working class sensibility. Yeah, which yeah. I think was really. Yeah. Important. We were we were talking before the podcast yeah. about that, and for progressive uh, candidates, uh, there are there are economic issues, but also cultural ones, yeah. and signals that of kind of uh, connection mm-hmm. to uh, working class communities is an essential. Part. Oh, it's 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 an essential ingredient without which uh, the rest of the recipe doesn't work. Right. Yeah. And I think that for a very long time here and in Canada, the the centrist liberal philosophy put that on the back burner, right? To torture the metaphor a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and you, I remember very vividly your talk about this uh, back in, would have been 2001 or 2002, the private conversation we had about it, that unless you are giving people a sense of possibility of progress economically, uh, you're not going to get much of a hearing on any other right. major issue. And um, historically, I think uh, I was looking at the lovely collection of political memorabilia on mm-hmm. uh, the wall in the green room there. And one of them is the Chicago Tribune in 1932 after Roosevelt. Yes. And and he's, FDR is probably the the gold standard standard for the the type of politics that you're talking about. It was, mm-hmm. you know, regular people come together in political movements because they need help, right? Yeah. And we shouldn't be ashamed of that. 
yeah. uh, not help as in in the sense of handout, but help in the sense of possibility in their lives. And yeah, I think better we, jobs you know, and better wages and better pensions and all of this stuff is the meat and potatoes of progressive politics. It is, and as you look at the politics of today, with the just sea changes mm-hmm. in economies that the ferocious cycles of change that technology and and, and, and and disruption have brought creating enormous opportunity for folks in places like Toronto and yeah. Chicago and elsewhere but leaving a lot of people feeling dispossessed and, and left out, discarded yeah. that i think is more important than ever i couldn't agree more yeah, yeah. so are so are by the way policy nostrums that are more than clichés which yeah. are hard to come by because these are really huge economic challenges, how to adapt to automation. And uh, Mm -hmm. one of the reasons I think uh, Andrew Yang has survived as long as he had improbably in this presidential Mm -hmm. race in the U.S. is that he's pitched his campaign around this whole economic change and how we deal with the implications of that. I think that's an important point because... I think that this is true of life, but my my aunt, the I, when I was thinking about whether to go work in politics uh, at all and work for uh, Dalton McGuinty, she said to me, as someone who had recently been in politics in a kind of peripheral way in uh-huh. the Senate, she said, you should always remember this. There are two kinds of people in politics. There are people who want to be something, and there are people who want to do something. I say it all the time. And, no. and, and there are more of the latter than the observing class would like to think but it's it's really important to have a clear idea of why you're there yes and what whom you're there for it was the thing frankly that i i, I didn't always succeed i did 150 campaigns i yeah. can't vouch for every yeah. decision that i ever made but it was the thing that i looked for most was yeah. does this person have a reason for doing this that's larger than themselves it was the thing that drew me to Obama in, yeah. in, in, and, in and the first place. I've on the in contrast, I've only ever worked for two people in, in terms of campaigns. I've only ever worked for Dalton McGinty and Justin Trudeau, and um, I worked in politics both of those times because I think that those people had a unique ability to move the dial on and a commitment to move the dial on the issues that I cared about. Mm-hmm. It wasn't about. It was never for me about being in an office or a particular job at a particular time. It was about uh, latterly climate change and primarily what I would call now uh, sort of economics that work for regular people. And that involves everything from taxation to public schools. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. You did uh, four years at the World Wildlife Wildlife Fund Fund, Canada, and you talk about this conversion to Mm -hmm. environmentalism. Today, climate change is your singular focus. That's right. Which is interesting for a coal miner's son. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Well, our our signature uh, environmental initiative, one of them in the McGinty McGinty years, was to replace about 7,550 megawatts of coal-fired generation. The irony was not lost on my father. Yeah. Yeah, what did he say to you about it? Well, he uh, he was very non-judgmental about it. He he would say something like the, the topic we're 
discussing, which is don't forget about the people who work in the industry. Yeah. And he's right. He was right. We have a climate crisis, and I feel that sense of urgency. But it is also the remedial efforts Mm -hmm. for this also require more disruptive change. Absolutely. And the ability to speak to the people who are on the the wrong side of the disruption is really important if you're going to do this successfully. I I couldn't agree more. I think that that is the job of political leadership for the foreseeable future, right? It's leading. We're we're obviously going through an enormous transition uh, in the global economy about the way we produce and consume and uh, transmit energy. And successful political leaders are going to be ones that cohesively lead uh, through that period. And it's 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 going to be a very challenging. So speaking about period. successful leaders, talk to me about the evolution of Justin Trudeau. Right. And yours was a partnership, much as I had a friendship with Barack Obama right. before I yeah. worked with him. You had this friendship st- uh, back to your college yeah. years yeah. Uh, with Justin Trudeau. Talk about this evolution. At what point did you together say, you know what, we can take this somewhere? Well, it was, as is often the case in politics and in life, it was a collision of necessity and opportunity, right? That um, the Liberal Party had its worst performance uh, in history in 2011, uh, faded to the third place party. And uh, Justin had uh, become an MP in caucus, and he was one of the few, the merry band of warriors that survived that. Um, they couldn't have been that merry. Uh, they were pretty merry, actually. <laughs> you know, it takes a special kind of political talent to survive <laughs> a, um, uh, an apocalypse like that. But And, and he, I think he came to the conclusion that if he didn't do this now, there may not be um, a party to lead, right? And, and how did you map out that? Uh, well, f- first we we sort of, I, I usually describe it to friends in the business community like a very successful startup operation, right? It started with about three or four volunteers in my kitchen in Toronto. Uh, Katie Telford and I sort of planned the organization from scratch. And it you grew. being the strategist, she being the manager. Uh, it was a little more collective. Uh, it was a little more collective mm-hmm. than that. I think that um, Th- those are ha- Katie doesn't. Katie sort of... doesn't get enough credit for the. I think there's a lot of gender stuff mixed up in the way people. Maybe yeah, so. Yeah, I, I, I have a lot of reverence for campaign managers. Me too. So. Me too. Yeah. Um, but there, it was very much a. Um, a collective operation, and there was more than just Katie and I involved in it. There were mm-hmm. there were quite a few really important people involved in it, and we we built it uh, out from scratch first to uh, win the leadership of the party, and then to build the campaign apparatus, and then to build the government. It all sounds easy, unmistakable. When you say it like that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, I want to ask you about yeah. one of the challenges. Yeah. Your message was very familiar to me, mm-hmm. uh, having been involved in the Obama races, and it was very much about possibility yeah. and hope, mm-hmm. and uh, you really swept through mm-hmm. to a huge victory, a majority government yeah. in 2015. That all sounds great. Right. Talk to me about the challenges of having raised expectations in the way that you raise them. You know, I, I, I remember driving with Obama and we, uh, right before the 2008 election, and we came to a rally, and there were 100,000 people waiting for him right. at this rally. And he turned to me and he said, you know, we're never going to be able to meet their expectations. 
And, you know, you didn't want to tamp the expectations down. Right. But on the other hand, it does create a challenge. And especially if you sweep to office with big majorities, because then everybody expects that every expectation will be met. Yeah, I think uh, I'd say a couple of things to that. One is the people who are not our friends would try to impose the Obama narrative on us, right? They would try and say, basically, this is going to be like Obama. Everybody's expectations are through the roof, and they're going to inevitably disappoint too many people. And there was there there is a degree of of maybe I'm doing that. Well, um, maybe you're doing the uh, the bad guys work, David, um, but I doubt it. I think there's a degree of truth to it. But the very important difference was at the beginning of the 2015 campaign, we were in third place. And we were in third place in the polls, and most people had written us off in the polls. What connected with Canadians, uh, and I think this is a very, we were talking about this before the podcast, I think this is very similar to what happened with you folks in 2008, that everybody looks back on it now as a as the right derisively calls it, the Hopi Changey campaign. But you guys had a very core economic message. We did, yeah. And it was it was a very tough contrast message with what the Republicans had on offer. We campaigned in 2015 on lifting people out of poverty, on a middle-class tax cut, on fixing the pension system. We It was very core meat and potatoes things that we talked about every day and we reinforced in advertising and we did once we were elected. Yeah, but you know, you also there was you you didn't run negative ads, you yeah. didn't there was this sense of uh you, you know, you not in the traditional sense unity. in which it's Yeah, but then you you get into the combat of governance yeah. and you guys took some criticism, you in particular yeah. for being, you know, sharply partisan at yeah. times in social Media. media. Yeah. One of my old clients was Harold Washington, oh, yeah. the first African American mayor yeah. of Chicago, and he used to say, "Politics ain't beanbag." Right. Yeah. Uh, and you have to be comfortable with conflict, right? And we we had a public conversation about this in Halifax a couple of years ago. Yes, I, I remember the way you put it, which I, I like the phrase. You said, "It's you always have to create a positive sense of what's possible, but at the end of the day, it's a dereliction of duty." not to paint a picture of what your country looks like under different leadership. Right. right. Elections are a choice. They're and people a choice, need to understand what the choice is. In a sense, when you ran in 2015, you were positioning yourself against a political environment. Correct. But it's different when you're you're, it's very you're, you're in the incumbent. And you made some, I know you guys got criticized for supporting uh, anti-terrorism legislation mm -hmm. that disappointed some of your progressive. Mm -hmm. These are the choices of governance absolutely and, and and it's also related to the i think the core point which is you have to start from what you think is the right thing for the country and work out from there and build a political strategy around how you're going to maintain support for what you think is right if you begin with what's the political strategy to win an election then I think you're going to be lost in the wilderness for a long time. But what about those decisions that you have to make that are flinty-eyed political decisions about all the rest of what we're doing is at risk if we don't compromise here? I mean, we should not leave people with the impression that every decision oh, yeah. I agree. Is, is made independent of politics because yeah. politics is a necessary part 100%. of democracy. Yeah, it is, and, it, and we shouldn't be ashamed of that. 
Yeah, uh, self-government is something we should be proud of, and you can only do self-government through politics. But if you run, and in certain ways you're running against politics as usual, you're running it. Then the the dings really show up when you act in ways that people think are political. Yeah, and and in ways that are, I think, familiar to them as government. You know, it's almost there. There are two preconceived notions you're working against. One is what is a politician like? And the other is, what is the government like? And I think that the longer you're in government, the more you sound like the government. Much as in our own experience in the Obama deal, the first race was much different than the second. When you're running for re-election, it's it's a much more of a comparative process. And Trudeau, he brought some burdens into it. And now he's he doesn't have a majority government. Mm-hmm. How constrained does that make him? And how is it going to make governing different in this term rather than the last? Right. I, I think um, the, the important thing to... I, I'm an optimist, right? Like you, I'm, uh, I choose to see the, uh, the positive possibilities and things. And I think that it could be interpreted... And I think they've done a very good job of it so far as a, an opportunity to focus on core issues, right? That you're not going to follow um, uh, momentary issues down rabbit holes. You're going to focus on the core aspects of the agenda. And I think that that is definitely the intention of the, the government, or it appears to me from In some ways, the decisions it, they've made. It, it, it is a disciplining yeah. factor. It is a disciplining factor. That's the word I was searching for. That said, I think that you have a very different system of government here. But in parliamentary democracies, you can't, you have to know that every minority government has more in common with every other minority government than it has with any majority government. And there are logistic and uh, technical parliamentary reasons why that's the case. But it's also from a broad uh, 30,000 foot level. You just don't have the same levers to control the agenda as you do in a majority situation. Yeah. He's dealing, as we speak, with a crisis. There were, what, 60 63 Canadians, Canadians. 63 Canadians on the Ukrainian jet yeah. that was shot down over Tehran in the midst of this standoff between the, the U.S. and uh, Iran. Not the standoff, but the, the, sure. the, the, the conflict after the, the, escalation. Uh, the killing of Soleimani. General mm-hmm. Soleimani, how does one navigate this, and how much pressure is there on him to a ascertain what actually happened, and b to derive some justice for those who were killed in this shooting? The the, the allegation being that the Iranians accidentally shot this jet down. Right. Uh, well, I'll, I'll say a couple of things about it because uh, I don't want to say too much about it because, as you would know, when you go from having being privy to intelligence to not being privy from to intelligence, I think you forever know the difference between those two mm-hmm. states, <laughs> right? That uh, the 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 government, I'm sure, is aware of things that we are not for a variety of good reasons. So I, I, I just prime minister has made it pretty clear he believes yes, that this was the that's case. That's correct. And we have zero tradition in Canada of the politicization of mm-hmm. intelligence. So if the prime minister of the country is that's saying- It's a good policy. It's a very good policy. It served us well. Uh, if the prime minister of the country is saying that, then it is, I think every Canadian can take it to the bank. Um, 
I I see this as a human tragedy, David. You know, and I I think that it's it's things happen in politics all the time, and people's lives are affected, and the the instinct or maybe the the tendency is to grow a thick skin and get inured to it over time. But well, 63, some, 63 lives in a small country, in a large country, it's a, it would be a tragedy. In a and, small country, uh, and, and, and even it, more so. And it, there's something so Canadian about it as well, that these were largely Canadians of either Iranian origin or had relation family relationships in Iran. Um, and a bunch of people from Iran who are coming to Canada to study. And I, I don't think we've ever had um, a tragedy that's affected our post-secondary institutions so directly. Like my wife went to the University of Windsor and the University of Toronto. I, as you mentioned earlier, I went to McGill. We're inundated with alumni association stuff and everybody knows somebody who is somehow connected to this mm-hmm. uh the persian community is it's just such a terrible terrible story and you, you know on that point uh canada's been and particularly under trudeau welcoming much more welcoming to refugees yeah. than certainly the trump administration <laughs> Uh, and I think that's it was, a fair. It was, it was viewed. That's, that's it was viewed. Judgment. I mean, it's a low bar, but yeah. it was a. It was viewed in in many ways as a reaction to the United States sort of closing mm-hmm. its its doors. How did that play electorally? Was it a an obstacle for him? Was it a negative in the race? I think it's it's one of those issues that. You do because you think it's the right thing to do. Understood. And, and, and it's Let's not, stipulate that. But, it, I mean, what about the politics of it? Uh, the politics of it are dicey. Mm-hmm. They're very dicey. I think that um, it's the kind of thing that really excites the base when you talk about it. And uh, independent-minded voters, it's sort of the dynamic you were describing earlier. They'd rather you talk about their job and their pensions. And do they see refugees as a threat to their not jobs in the and same pension? way. Not in the same way as... as uh, the case in the United States, and mercifully so. But we have had a long term. It's one of the most important things about Canada. I think uh, we have had a long term cross partisan agreement about the value of immigration, right? And the, the globally, the right has attacked that uh, policy area as a way to make people feel fearful of for their jobs and worried about their own economic security. We in Canada have so far, and it's a fragile thing, and you, you have to continuously tend to that garden or it, uh, it, it goes awry. But so far, so good, I would tentatively say in Canada, it's still a pretty third rail issue. So let me ask you, obviously, there was, there was a big controversy that, that resulted in you leaving government. But before I get to that, I want to ask about our own president here. Donald Trump and your interactions with him. Canada had great has great equities, right, uh, with the U.S. and he, particularly around this uh, uh, this issue of NAFTA and the redone NAFTA trade being re- you know, with America being essential. Oh, it was a it was it dominated. To say that it dominated our agenda would be an understatement. I'm not sure what the appropriate superlative would be, but when Trump became president and suddenly said that came into office and then confirmed that he wanted to renegotiate NAFTA. Needless to say, it's a very big deal to Canada. 
uh, so it dominated our agenda for the better part of two and a half years. It seems to me that the big challenge is Canadians want to have a good relationship with America. They understand that's vital. Um, and, and yet they also don't want to get pushed around by the American president. Correct. An eternal truth of Canadian existence that got, I think, uniquely accentuated in the last few years. One of the hallmarks of Trump has been his America first policy. He's been very tough on uh, NATO. He's been in many ways tougher on his allies than he has on America's traditional foes, uh, Russia and famously now North Korea and so on. What is the impact of that on the alliance? And how concerned are you about maintaining a coherent Western alliance if the U.S. Is not playing the leadership role that it's played in the past, or if the U.S. is trying to impose its will in ways that are different than in the past. Yeah, the I'd say a couple of things to that, David. The first is you, as you know better than I do, have a long history of isolationism in the United States. Donald Trump is not the first isolationist. Well, and, and there is States. a weariness in this country, as there probably is in Canada. We because foreign you, entanglements and yeah, we you know not. we the, this has been uh, sixteen years since the engagement in Iraq began, and uh, Afghanistan even longer. I agree, and I, the. I think the the role that Bush's Iraq war has played in fostering the environment for the politics that you and I have navigated for the past 15 years is perhaps uh, too seldom commented upon and thought about because I think it it weakened institutions all over the world to see their governments not being honest with them about a matter of life and death. I think in some ways the, the demise uh, of the British Labour Party is associated with that yeah. that conflict. Tony Blair came under enormous, enormous criticism. Enormous criticism. And um, yeah, so I think we could we could talk about that for a long time. I as a Canadian, a Canadian citizen, a private Canadian citizen these days, mm-hmm. I am keenly aware of how much my country's prosperity and peace depends on well functioning alliances of like minded countries who share values, whether that's NATO, whether that's the WTO, whether that's uh, a variety of really important post-war institutions that we came together to build so that we could maintain the rule of law in some Aren't all those of, institutions, aren't they all under threat right now? I think they are for a variety of factors, and Trump has become sort of the proximate instrument for it. But it's not like he's making novel arguments. These arguments have been around for a long time. the The thing that worries me is it's always the uh, uh, the unknowns. It's you don't know how weak an alliance is until there is a crisis. We've had a very long period of time globally, and this is part of the work that I'm doing with the Eurasia Group. We've had a very long period of time without a global crisis. The financial crisis, which <laughs> You, you yeah, are intimately. I remember it. Yeah. You, you, you uh, remember that movie. Would be the last one for sure, I think. Um, but in terms of uh, security crisis, it's been mm-hmm. a very long time. So, what worries me, having been in those situations in government, is what happens when something really serious happens. Yeah. Yeah. So, look, I, I mean, and that. You know, when you need, I remember very well President Obama mobilizing the global community oh, yeah. around trying to get 
the uh, this uh, financial contagion mm-hmm. under control, um, and certainly there. He told the whole story at the first G seven I attended in uh, yeah, Japan. Yeah, these institutions and these alliances are meaningful in times they really like are. that. They really yeah. are, and and he, President Obama. Uh, told the whole history for the newcomers around the table of how important the G7 table was in the aftermath of the financial crisis and the role that the G20 played, the Pittsburgh G20. And it's, it's easy to, I think it's a, it's a, it's a macro point that we would both agree with. It's easy to deride these public institutions. It's easy to deride political leadership and politicians and people who spend time in public life. But when you need when you need them to function, right. they've got to function. Yeah. Well, I, I keep saying to people, um, you know, how would we function if we didn't have traffic lights? Right. If we didn't have some system in which everybody bought in that said, no, I'm not going to drive ahead and cause a crash. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that there there is danger in a world where there are none. I, I think. I would venture to guess you'd agree with this. The the people that I talk to around the world that I've had formed relationships with over the course of my time in politics, everybody's a little uneasy, right? Uh, and that's because this is a very very novel um, set of circumstances we're dealing with in the global community. Well, things are changing very rapidly. They are. The and, risk factors are multiplying. And Trump is just a, a, a one, he's a symptom and an accelerant. Uh, but we should also recognize, as we talk about rules and laws and norms and institutions, that there are a lot of people, particularly on the, the wrong side of that disruption, oh, yeah. who don't feel that those rules and laws and, have norms have, and institutions have worked for them. And that is an enormous political opportunity for the populists of the left and the right. Yeah, that's right. And and so it's a real warning sign to those who are tending to these institutions that they better be more responsive. Yes, yes. They better see actual, real flesh and blood people at the heart of their agendas. You told me once, I don't know if I'm revealing something that I shouldn't reveal here, but we're we're sitting here. The mics are running, so you yeah. really can't do anything about it now. You guys had a strategy yeah. when you first met Trump, and one of the things that Justin Trudeau did was he brought a photograph of the president that he presented him with, uh, of Donald Trump, a young Donald Trump, right, with Pierre Trudeau. That's right, uh, and that was a well-received gift. Yes. You must have thought about that. You could have brought, you know, brought a, a gift from provincial. Like, like everything uh, to do with the Canada-U.S. relationship. Um, all Canadian prime ministers are judged by how, on a few core things. And one of them, they're sort of like the never-ending files that are on any Canadian prime minister's desk. And one of the most important of them is maintaining a constructive and productive relationship with the president of the United States. And it's very difficult. And I think the prime minister was keenly aware of his father's difficulties with President Nixon. Um, and he was determined, and I think he's done an unbelievably, po- I'm gonna, people are going to expect me to say this, but I think he's done an unbelievable. Although there, no, good you job. can't. I mean, you know, there are times when, particularly around these internet, this last, uh, I guess it was a NATO meeting, right? Yeah. Where uh, right. Trudeau was pictured right. uh, with, with some Johnson other foreign leaders uh, yeah. yucking it up about yeah. Trump. Trump left in a huff. 
Yeah. And had uh, he and he's a couple of other times he's been pretty caustic in his. Well, he he's a he's a unique character. I mean, there's just no doubt about it. And well, tell me how you, tell me about how tell me what your analysis as a student of people in politics, your analysis of Donald Trump as best as you can, be, uh, without creating an international issue. <laughs> Those are some guardrails. Um, what I will say about Trump, having had a lot of exposure to him and his people, is. Uh, that he is exactly the same person behind closed doors as he is in front of the cameras. And uh, I think that we have spent, we had spent, and I'm sure that my former colleagues are still spending, an enormous amount of time thinking about what uh, makes him tick and what motivates him. And some of it is the level of uh, state secret still probably, so I shouldn't talk about it too much. I think he's too bad. He's someone who's, uh, who's motivated by, um, like everyone is, their own success politically. But he, you know, he's a, he's, he's a ferocious campaigner. And I think that uh, he's an unpredictable one. It's all, all the stuff you know, that but you've you know written what? I'll tell you something. All... You, there were people when you said he's exactly behind closed doors what he is in public. I'm sure there are people who are listening to this podcast who are saying, gee, I, wish, I was hoping you would say something different. Yeah. But I, I think it also speaks to his power as a politician. I agree. Because Whatever else he is, he is utterly authentic. Yeah. Nobody ever says, gee, I wish Donald Trump would speak his mind. Yeah. Uh, and that is in a business that, I mean, if I would say there was a criticism of Trudeau at times, it was the sense that maybe he isn't utter, always authentic. Maybe he is a bit of an actor. Maybe he is. Nobody says that about Donald Trump. Yeah. Uh, whether well, if he's an actor, he's been playing the same role for a very long time. Right. Yeah. Right. He's pretty convincing in it. Yeah. He's pretty convincing in it. So let's talk about the the end of your tenure with Trudeau. You you uh, resigned uh, in February of last year, mm-hmm. almost a year ago, uh, and it was around a controversy involving a a large Canadian firm, mm-hmm. SNC Lavalin. They had legal issues with the Canadian government over dealings with. Libya, mm-hmm. and a departing justice minister claimed that there was interference from the prime minister's mm-hmm. office trying to uh, essentially force a, se- a settlement or a deferred prosecution agreement uh, with this f- firm over this Libyan issue and basically fingering you as an architect of mm-hmm. the whole of the whole thing. Is that a fair summation? Yeah, I think that... Um it's a fair summation, absolutely. I think that she, uh, she, um, at the in the end, she didn't. Uh, in fact, she went on record afterwards saying that she never that I I had never pressured her, but uh, she definitely made an accusation that the that the office and the prime minister himself had tried to pressure her into signing a deferred prosecution agreement with the company obviously i disagree with that conclusion and well, um, what did happen well um i mean without getting into great length yeah. what did the prime minister's office have a position on this prosecution uh no the prime minister felt that the, uh, I think the office, everyone around the prime minister felt that we had to be able to look. It was 5,000 people who were going to lose their jobs if the country, if the company went down the toilet. And we wanted to be able to look those people in the eye and say we did everything possible to save their jobs, right? 
And um, we felt at the time that everything possible hadn't been done. And the, you know, Canadians will know that I spent two hours of live television on mm -hmm. this going through all of the entrails. Um, but at the end of the day, I think it came down to uh, a difference of a, a disagreement between us and her about what was appropriate. Mm -hmm. And uh, in in the aftermath, I think those entrails have been picked, the government's been reelected. Uh, every anybody who wanted to make up an, a, their mind on that basis did so. Uh, I maintain every word of what I said in March of last year, and uh, I don't think the government did anything wrong. Did you, um, but, and yet you resign. Yeah. Yeah, I thought that at the time, and I stand by that decision as well, I thought there was a real risk that the, my closeness to the prime minister and the role that was being depicted that I played, which was not the role I played um, uh, in the whole in the whole issue was going to be weaponized against him, either by the opposition or uh, the press or, you know, basically I was worried that people were going to say it was all his fault, but the prime minister won't do anything about it because he's his best friend. Mm -hmm. And that's not a responsible place to be, right? You can't allow, uh, it's, we were talking about this beforehand too, that there's, uh, you know, there's an upside and a downside about having a deep friendship with the person you're working with. And that I think that's true in every workplace. It's especially true in the fishbowl of politics. I, uh, I know how exhilarating service at a high level yeah. is, and especially when you're close to the principal mm -hmm. as, and, and you were as close as could be. Um, how did it feel to, to have to leave? And, and I, I know what it's like when all of a sudden you're, mm -hmm. you're, you're, <laughs> Your, you know, device is not ringing off yeah. the hook, and you're not getting email after email asking about you know critically important issues and yeah. so on, and you're not talking to the principal mm -hmm. on a moment to moment basis. I found it deeply depressing. Uh, yeah. But you may be a, a, a more even keel than me. I don't think it's a question of whether you're an even keel. I mean, I I I think that one of the most one of my favorite writers, David Wallace, wrote this that the most important freedom we have in life is the freedom to choose what we pay attention to, right? Mm -hmm. And I was keenly aware, I was going to do basically what you did. I was going to leave after the election. And uh, there are enormous number of talented people who could step into the roles that we created. And we built a whole organization with the thought of succession in the first place. But, you know, uh, I was but you, had, you, you didn't anticipate leaving under these circumstances. No, I didn't. I didn't. And nobody does. But you also know, and you would know this as well, if not better than I do, that every day in those jobs, it's sort of a, a, a political friend in Canada of mine said it's like, it's like in Star Wars where they have to fly the fighter jets through the asteroid belt. You know, someday an asteroid's going to crack the windshield. And it could, it could be tomorrow over that issue. It could be Wednesday over another issue. And you just have to be a little, in my view, a little bit stoic about it and see it for what it is. I mean, at the end of the day, I got to uh, work with a lot of people uh, who I deeply respect and admire to do things that I really believe needed doing for my country. And who gets to do that, mm -hmm. right? I mean, we lifted a million people out of poverty, including 
300,000 kids in four years. We have a real climate change plan for the first time in the history of the country. Uh, whatever happened last February is insignificant to me personally compared to those things. On climate change, yeah. uh, you know, I, I read last week that the sounding of alarms in Canada about yeah. w- uh, wildfires, yeah. uh, which we've seen in Gulf, obviously, Australia, Australia Western uh, U.S., and so on. Um, where are we? You, you, we should point out you're working now, uh, at, you're, you're working on a number of different projects involving uh, climate, including uh, uh, doing uh, risk assessment for the Eurasia group, group yeah. that is in that uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, well, I, I think, and I would, I should take the opportunity to stump for Eurasia group because uh, I think it's one, obviously, I wouldn't have associated with the firm if I didn't think highly of it, and Ian Bremer, who founded it. Uh, it's Climate change is becoming a ge- geopolitical risk issue in a way that I think few are prepared for. I think in 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 our last election, we've gone in a 10-year cycle from uh, a government winning an election opposing a carbon price to a government getting reelected by implementing one. And I think that will tell you how the velocity at which this issue is traveling. Uh, it'll be very, I think it's a globally significant thing, what happens to the politics of Australia in the aftermath of these wildfires. Uh, But most importantly, I think that I have a 13-year-old and a 12-year-old kid. I think about, I'm intimately aware of the science. I'm not a scientist myself, but I certainly have read in detail most of the major studies. I know enough to be really concerned. And these dates like 2040 and 2050, I start thinking that my kids are going to be younger than I am now then. So it's... uh, uh, I think a, a scientist once said to me that the reason climate scientists sound like alarmists is because we're alarmed. Yeah. And uh, I think politics needs to catch up to that sense of urgency. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, we tend in politics to think about the immediate. Yeah. And one of the barriers on climate change has been it is has been largely theoretical. Yeah. The question is when the theoretical becomes of immediate concern and and when when do we reach that political tipping point even as we speak president trump has repealed about 100 yeah. or so environmental yeah. regulations and he just took another step relative to environmental regulations of large infrastructure projects it, it has become a cultural mm-hmm. sort of dividing line that climate is sort of the fixation of urban elites yeah. and to the detriment of the interests of working working class people, people yeah I, I think that you know if Hillary Clinton was right uh, for all time about one thing it was that remark about there being a global right-wing conspiracy because on climate there really is I know it sounds kind of crazy but the Murdoch press and their financiers have spent a lot of strategic effort and money to convince people that climate action is not in their interest. Right. And I think that we're seeing this. Well, I know we're seeing this most conclusively in Australia uh, as we speak, but it's a dynamic that's infected politics all over the West uh, for the last 
30 years. Is it changing? I think it is changing, and I think it's changing generationally. I think I have a lot of faith in, I know a lot of people from uh, my generation and yours uh, can too often look down our noses at millennials and Gen Z, but I have a lot of faith. Hey, man, I work at the Institute of Politics at the University of Chicago. I I I know you're not one of those people, which is why I feel comfortable raising it, but um, I have a lot of faith in young people, David. Mm -hmm. You you work with them all all the time here, and Mm -hmm. I think that they're just they're just beginning to realize what kind of power they have to shape their own future. Yeah. And I, they're going to seize it. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with that. The speed at which these changes can come will come in part because of what we spoke about earlier, the ability to include everyone in the process. Yeah. That is a challenging... Yeah. And, and you guys in the first Obama term were sort of the the test case for a lot of the new kind of conservative politics, the really uh, hard-edged right-wing politics. I I don't know. I think we had this conversation when you were there, but how many times was Obama described as a divisive figure, Mm -hmm. right? He wasn't a divisive figure. He was, um, it was in the political interests of his opponents for him to be thought of that way. Yeah. And uh, I think that on the progressive side of the equation, we have to get a lot smarter about that sort of thing. Yeah. Jerry Butts, so good to be with you. Thank it's you great to be uh, here, David. for, uh, I could talk to you for a long time. We, and, I, and in fact, we do talk uh, yeah, all the time. Yeah. So, uh, but good luck in your newest pursuits. Thanks, And um, like I said, let's continue the conversation. Absolutely. Thank you. It was an honor to be here. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of The Axe Files is Emily Stanitz. The show is also produced by Miriam Annenberg, Samantha Neal, and Allison Siegel. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Courtney Coop, Megan Marcus, and Ashley Lusk. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.